Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Cameron Abassi. In this episode of the podcast, we're bringing you the annual BMJ Nuffield Trust Roundtable. And this year, in the face of the pandemic response, we're asking, what should following the science mean for government policy? I'm delighted that we have a really excellent panel and group of invited guests to discuss this topic. I'm going to just make a few uh, comments about this to begin with. One of the challenges in um, making policy decisions is how best to juggle the evidence. And often the evidence accumulates at a much slower rate than you want to make those policy decisions. And it's a real challenge, therefore, for policymakers uh, to take whatever evidence is available, whatever emerging evidence there is, to make those very difficult decisions. So science and uh, evidence often moves on a slower track than uh, the policymakers want to make those choices. How do we resolve that? Science in itself is inherently uncertain. There's rarely a, a perfect study, something that gives us a definitive answer. Uh, we're offering, often grappling with uncertainty. So the question again is how do we grapple with that uncertainty? And then amongst all of this, how do we provide the greatest transparency in decision-making in terms of how the evidence has been presented to policymakers um, and how it is then presented to professionals and the public? Because ultimately, that's how we want to create trust uh, by being transparent and open in decision-making. So to tackle those thorny issues, um, we're going to turn to uh, five initial discussants and then we will have a response from uh, some of our roundtable guests and then we'll open the conversation up more broadly with questions and more discussion. So without further ado, just to focus us, uh, we could talk about the world. Um, the world is important, lessons internationally are important, but the focus of the conversation today is the UK and we want to look ahead and think how might we uh, improve this whole process of, uh, of science, evidence and policy making. So, First of all, uh, I'd like to turn to Partha Carr, who's the National Speci Specialty Advisor for Diabetes for NHS England. He's a frontline clinician and a senior doctor in the NHS. Partha, over to you. I think it's one of those tricky questions, as you said. We're in the middle of a pandemic. It's a new thing. We're evolving the science. We want to sort of, you know, feel our way as we go along. But if you take a step back, I think the UK's approach to how they have looked at science isn't hugely different to what we do normally. So those of us who have been enough in the clinical field will know how we look at NICE guidelines. We love it when it fits the funding envelope on our own agenda. We really don't like it when, so it's fascinating to see how we interpret data, but it's that dichotomy which really confuses people where you go like, which science are we following? And it's not just a pandemic thing. And as I said, I think that's quite important for us to recognize. I think there is one thing which we need to realize, science keeps changing. So in our world, you know, 10 years ago, if you had type two diabetes, that was it, it's progressive. You can't change it. Look at it now, you know, the world is different, but that's evolution of science with randomized controlled trials. What we're talking about is different markers or measures as to how we look at science. And I think that has been the challenge in the pandemic, trying to get a grip of which parameters you're using to shape policy and to me, it feels a lot about what we see in our world of diabetes and, you know, jostling with evidence and nice and everything. It feels exactly like that. You go and talk to people and, as I said, 
They love it if it fits it. They don't love it if it doesn't fit it. And that, that seems to have been the approach during the whole UK pandemic as well. Thanks, Bob. Um, the implication of that is that that inconsistency is unsatisfactory. Yeah, I think How, so. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think what it does do, it opens up lots of questions, right? And it, it creates this typical, there is no collaborative collegiate approach in this country. They're camps. I mean, and that might be a reflection of the world we live in. It, there's, on, there, there's only something certain. There only can be two doses of vaccine or one dose of the vaccine. And can we only at four weeks or 12 weeks? It's just divided it into camps. And you're having the same debate with masks and everything. So I think because of the lack of consistency, you're creating all these heated debates, people getting really annoyed about what's going on, and then they're pouring over the data to find what suits their confirmation bias, creating more divisions. And I think that's what needs to sort of change, is to say people need to be open and say, look, we don't know exactly what will happen. We are, we are not playing you know, fast and loose with the science, but we have to have that adaptability to go. And in the absence of that is what really annoys people, which is what brings out all the conspiracy theories. Why are you not trying Ivermectin and all that sort of stuff? And you're going like, well, the trials don't support it. And then people are going, but you're not supporting the trial in that one. So, you know, it goes on and on and on. And I think that's what's unsatisfactory about it. Okay, so imposing this certainty in situations where there is some uncertainty is something that government has to grapple with. And and one way they've done that, I'm going to turn to Deb Cohen from BBC Newsnight uh, next, is by trying to manage that information via press releases and other means. Um, as a journalist and one of the highest profile uh, current affairs programmes, Debs, uh, how might we make this whole system better? I think, I mean, adding to what Partha said, I don't think I could articulate any of that any better. And actually coming into this as a, as a science specialist science and health reporter I mean it's been one of the most challenging periods I've ever had as, as a reporter the, you know, I've done some pretty thorny investigations as you know Cameron for the BMJ but but yeah. this is this is a different league and and I was trying to think about what what have been the main challenges actually so there is the kind of toxicity as I think I'll put it slightly more boldly than Partha but there is a it's a really toxic debate and I think some of that does go a lot of that just goes down to what Partha was saying about sometimes we'll rely on randomised control trial evidence, other times we don't require it. Um, certainly for the NPI non-pharmaceutical interventions, we haven't always demanded RCT evidence, and that might be perfectly fine because we're in a pandemic and a totally unusual situation. But, but that, it, it feels inconsistent for people that are coming new to science in the first place. And a lot of my job early on, I mean, there was, there was there was no transparency and I've kind of tried to split it up a little bit. So start of the pandemic, no transparency. So I was reporting on early data from Italy that the Italian government had published that was on the different symptoms for um, COVID. And I was relying on leaks from, from the UK. It's, um, what was it? Official sensitive leaks just to get basic information. And I was looking at stuff thinking, why is this sensitive? I, I, I fundamentally don't understand why this is sensitive. It's things like the first few hundred um, patients with COVID that had their symptoms. Um, so, you know, arguably more relevant to, to the UK than, but I was reporting off Italian data. So, so that was really puzzling to start off with. And then obviously Independent Sage came along and, and raised transparency as a big issue. But right at the start, I, I was reporting blind and people were coming in asking me stuff. And I, I just didn't know what to 
what to say. And also you've got people coming into science journalism for the first time. You've, I, I'm used to kind of splashing around in a relatively um, specialist pool. Every, all of a sudden, all journalists from different disciplines are jumping into your paddling pool and kind of creating waves that you're kind of, you know, um, and trying to kind of paddle on those, you know, trying to swim through those waves. And it's really, it's really tough because we know science is complex. We know science is uncertain. You know, and you get these big headlines, science says, well, science doesn't always say that. Science does change. And, and I think sometimes it's just a total lack of an acknowledgement of the uncertainty. So that was a big one uh, for me. Also, from my perspective on TV, I rely on people speaking. I rely on being able to interview people. And so often the people that you wanted to speak to can't speak, you know, whether that's from a trust or whether that's from um, in public health or something. So, so you have to do a lot of on the record chat to try and influence your, your commentary, if you like, which is just not ideal. So if you've got an academic, um, obviously, post, then, then that's slightly different. But so often you really wanted to speak to on the ground people with different concerns and fears and so on. And that just isn't always possible. So that's incredibly tricky. Um, the other thing is, is the science, the briefings. So early data briefed out to certain political correspondents, I won't name, because um, I realise this is on the record, although I've been very vocal on it on Twitter, so I don't think, uh, I don't think it'll be a surprise to anyone um, that, who I'm referring to. Um, but that's really troubling. So what happens is someone gets a briefing, the data aren't published, I go into work and people say, well, what does this mean, Deb? And I'm like, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> and I legitimately, I've not seen any data. So I can't report on this. And I think for me, it's been consistent. Have I seen the data? Yeah, okay, I can report on it. Is this a scientific briefing? If it's only a briefing, then what do I do with that information? You just have to be transparent with the audience about your workings. So, am I, so the other one here I've written down was press releases. So reporting of clinical trials from a press release. I, I've not seen the full data set. I have to be explicit and transparent with the audience that this is from a press release. We've not seen the full data. Um, so, so it's limited what, what I can say. And obviously we know that particularly for, for the vaccines. I think there's been a failure to, to acknowledge uncertainty. Um, and for that, you know, you can interpret data in different ways to suit your priors, if you like, or your, or, or your prior beliefs. And that's been very, very difficult for people that don't understand science. I used to edit the head-to-head -head debate section at the BMJ. So I'm used to this kind of scientists really thrashing it out and going at each other like hammer and tongs this has all kind of been played out in the public and for people that, that don't understand the kind of nature of scientific discourse at times the fact it can be really kind of sometimes quite aggressive quite frankly and um, people vehemently disagree with each other that's a real surprise so all of this is 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 quite challenging um as, as Parthas mentions, the different levels of evidence. So I, I remember doing something early June about masks and um, it, I'd avoided it like the plague. And then the programme editor said to me, oh, can you do something on masks tonight? And I was like, oh, you know, massive heart sink. And you know, we didn't have RCT evidence. And I had to explain, you know, people want to debate the quality of the evidence. And at the end of the day, you know, sometimes we have to put policies in place before we have high quality evidence when we're in the middle of a pandemic situation. But, but again, that's confusing for people. And if we're not honest, I mean, there's all sorts of conspiracy theorists, as, as Partha mentioned. If we're not honest about the quality of the evidence, if we're not honest about the uncertainties, also if we're not honest about the benefits and the harms. I'm used to reporting on benefits and harms of pharmaceutical interventions and devices and things 
NPIs have benefits and harms as well. So I think we have to be honest about that. Nothing is 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 without a side effect, if you like. That's very comprehensive. Thank you for that. Um, and there's quite a lot to kind of pick out of that. I mean, one of the one of the issues is making pragmatic decisions on the basis of the evidence that's available, being transparent, but also having some sense of a, a strategy. Now, Tom, I'm going to go to you next. You're Tom Sass, Associate Director at the Institute of Government, and you published a report back in September, I think, about the use of science advice in the pandemic response. It'd be great to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Cameron. Thanks for uh, inviting me. It's been really interesting. So, yeah, we looked sort of at how policymakers had used scientific advice, but very much sort of looking at the centre, so the sort of SAGE process feeding into sort of COBRA and central government. And what we were sort of grappling with is this conundrum of the fact that the UK sort of thought it had the most advanced, the most developed scientific advice structure in the world. It was sort of copied in a lot of places. And yet our policy response has been sort of far from, from world beating, to sort of use the, the phrase that's often thrown about. Um, I'll just pick out five very brief points that we make in our piece. So the first is about understanding roles and policymakers understanding roles. So it's clear in this crisis from the very start, there's been this sort of blurring of lines between independent advice and decision making. Following the science was this is an obvious, well, you know, often made point, but totally the wrong way to describe what is a sort of political judgment. And it's just worth saying that other leaders, you know, Angela Merkel, Jacinda Ardern, Nicola Sturgeon, mm -hmm. described it in a very different way. And they sort of emphasised their own judgment in making those decisions. Um, if you go back and look at other crises, this sort of blurring does happen, you know, BSE, foot and mouth, so on. But I think it was more profound in this crisis and it was more about a confusion about ultimately who was responsible for decision making at the centre. Uh, and I think that was that, that made things quite difficult. We've got some ideas in our piece about training and induction for ministers that might help with that. The second point I'd make is just about the SAGE mechanism and how that works. So I think SAGE is this sort of incredible machine for bringing together huge volumes of scientific evidence and opinion very quickly. Um, but I think the process of how it fed into government broke down a little bit. It's got this kind of call and response mechanism. Uh, the questions coming down to SAGE weren't particularly well formulated. They were being thrown from all across government, particularly by departments with not very much expertise of drawing on scientists. Um, but also SAGE members didn't really understand what the government's strategy was. Uh, and that made it very difficult for them to provide uh, useful advice. And I think there is also a big overarching question of what comes after SAGE, because the fact that we've still got this temporary committee at, at sort of a year in is interesting. I think the point you've made, Cameron, and, and Deborah picked up on of acting under uncertainty is just a massive lesson from this crisis, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how do policymakers act in the absence of evidence? The UK has arguably been caught out, I think, by sort of waiting for too, too high a standard of evidence before making decisions. Um, and clearly science is sort of innovating in some sense here. We've seen proliferation of preprints and all these other developments, but I think policymakers need to innovate too, and they need to think about what does delaying this decision until evidence is more certain mean? What's the potential cost of that delay? Is there a case for acting on a more precautionary basis? And, you know, that, that's what some other countries did and it comes back a little bit to the question of whether having you know really sort of strong science advice structures actually helped us in some sense because they had a certain expectation about the standard of evidence 
the fourth one I was just would say sort of integrating a range of advice. So I think the reason following the science mm. is so wrong is because clearly political decisions were never going to be based solely on the science. Um, but I think what we've seen that's been quite damaging is different parts of government having very different views of the evidence and of the virus and that evidence not being brought together in one place. So the sort of best example of this is the Treasury making policies in the, in the early summer with an expectation that we could avoid a second wave, um, which was not shared by, by a lot of sort of epidemiologists advising government. Um, I think, you know, some people talk about put, putting economists on sage. I think that slightly outsources the problem. Really, if mm. you understand Whitehall, it is the cabinet office that is meant to bring together these different elements and sort of broker decision making. And that's a bit that's been failing. Um, I think there has been some interesting work happening out in sort of science and academia to try and bring together epidemiology and economics, you know, bring together modelling. And I think there's a question about how you integrate disciplines a bit more. Um, and then the final point I would make is just on policymakers feeling that they can interrogate advice, scientific advice, and not to feel. We had one cabinet secretary say that politicians often glaze over when the scientists brief them on certain things. Or uh, I've seen Lawrence Friedman, a historian who's looked at this, describe policymakers as passive recipients of scientific advice. And that's absolutely not what you want. You want uh, policymakers to be taking responsibility and to be challenging advice understanding the basis of it um, and I think that, that that's a lesson too. Tom thank you that's very again very comprehensive overview of some very complex issues. Um, what leaps out at me is that you to make sense of the science you need some understanding of research and methodology um, otherwise you find it hard to actually grasp the uncertainty um, and, and the question is how, how do we overcome that so I'm sure we'll dissect some of the points you and Deb and Path have made already later in the conversation. But I want to go to Christina uh, Pagel now. And um, Christina, you're a very prominent member of Ice Age, grappling with how to make best use of science. I think we all accept that you can't be dictated by the science. It has to inform your policy making. Um, and there are not just the standard methodologies to be used as well, certainly in a rapidly changing scenario. What's your uh, view on how we might uh, make that relationship a more fruitful one between science and policymaking? Yes, yeah, so I think, you know, we talk about following the science and, and kind of building a bit on what Tom was just saying. I think it, it can't just be following. There has to be some understanding of the mm. science. There has to be some understanding of the fundamentals of what an infectious disease is and how it works. Because understanding that changes the kind of responses that you might do. So for instance, understanding that it matters whether it's airborne or not airborne. Like we didn't know that to begin with, but as soon as you do know it, you have to have different types of interventions come in. Um, understanding the difference between symptomatic and asymptomatic spread. Again, it completely changes the kind of policies you need to put in place. And the biggie is understanding exponential growth. I, I think there's just been a complete failure in government, not just this government around mm. the world, understanding what exponential growth means and what it means for your luxury of waiting to make decisions because you don't have it basically. Um, and someone earlier was talking about kind of political timescales being faster than evidence timescales. Well, disease timescales are even faster than that. Mm. So actually, if you wanna wait a few weeks to see how things go or to talk about it a bit more, or to discuss it a bit more, you're in a fundamentally different state of the epidemic. And we saw that 
in March when it first happened. But we saw it again in December when we came out of the November lockdown and there was this hesitation to actually impose harsher measures before Christmas that, and then we ended up with that terrible spike in January. So I think kind of, you do have to have an understanding of, of that infectious disease kind of process to follow the science. Because otherwise, I, I, I just think it leads you into, into error. So there's that. Yeah. I think it's also about following all the science. So I think, to, especially to begin with, and Sage, there was a, you know, a focus on the science of epidemiology and also the science of medical interventions on drug trials, on ventilators, on vaccines. But also, you know, there's the science of non-pharma interventions and all the, you know, the NPIs and the public health and contact tracing, testing, um, prevention. And that, again, is about understanding infectious disease dynamics. There's no trial of contact tracing, right? It's about understanding that diseases spread as people contact each other and thinking about exposure and how do you limit exposure to a virus. And that is a kind of different type of evidence and a different type of science that is incredibly important. Um, and of course, there's behavioral science. So SPY-B, which is the SAGE Behavioral Subcommittee, produced loads of really excellent reports. I remember going through them all last May on communication, on messaging, on how to bring people together, and then thinking, why wow, the government's just ignored all of this. You know, after about April, they just kind of ignored it. It was just really weird. I was like, you've got this amazing subgroup that's doing all this amazing work, and you're not listening to it. So that I thought was quite interesting. And I don't know whether that's because somehow behavioral science isn't seen as proper science. I don't know quite how that happened. Mm. Um, Tom already mentioned about questions not being well-defined and I think that has been an issue that that because SAGE can only do what it's asked to do that's its remit it limits its usefulness so for instance back in the beginning you know there was no model of lockdown because there was this assumption that people won't do it and I think by assuming that you know what people are going to do um, you're limiting your response and if, if there's anything I think we've learned is that the public you can, you know, we, you know, I remember when Italy went into lockdown and I remember when we went into lockdown and it felt like this such a massive thing with being told to stay at home and it was just like, everything's changed. By this lockdown, everyone was like, it's fine. Like, I know what a lockdown is, you know? Mm. <laughs> we have we have come to, to live with it. Um, and finally, just to say, it's not just about following our science, it's following international science. And I feel as if in the UK, there was this kind of idea that, that we didn't need to, to learn internationally, that we didn't need to listen to WHO who were banging on about testing from the very beginning, that we didn't need to learn from Italy, you know, who were three, four weeks ahead of us, um, that we didn't need to learn from China, that somehow they're so different, they don't apply to us. And even now, you know, I feel like we haven't learned on things like payment for self-isolation. There's a massive amount of evidence now that payment for self-isolation and support massively improves um, isolation behaviors and can reduce transmission. And yet it feels like we haven't learned from that. There's this kind of reluctance to take all of the information that's available and not just the information that relates to the UK. So I guess that's mm. all I have to say. You know, thank you for that. I mean, asking, what do you think, what, why is there that reluctance? Because as you say, some of that evidence and experience has been available. It's not perfect science, we know that. We know that no one's saying you must absolutely follow the science, you need to be informed by it. But there is, there is that, uh, we have that knowledge and it's not being applied. It's one of the reasons that you're saying um, people need a better understanding of science, um, make, who, people are making these policy decisions. Is it realistic to expect that? Uh, because even a scientist, uh, somebody who's 
working on randomized controlled trials, probably doesn't really understand behavioral research, uh, science research too well. What's the what's a reasonable expectation, Christina? Well, I mean, that I, I don't know. I know personally from having been on IndieSage since May, it has changed my entire outlook on science and how I would approach the kind of work I do in healthcare because I've just learned so much from different perspectives and have a much better understanding of how all things fit together. Now, that I don't think is a job for politicians. They can't devote that kind of time to it. But I think understanding the basics of, of exponential growth, of understanding that um, uh, that you have to act before things feel bad, yeah. understanding the limits of the data that you have and the timescales involved, I think, yes, that's absolutely a, a requisite. And I'm just like having the, the CRG saying lockdowns don't work. I was like, it's literally an infectious disease. If you reduce contacts, you reduce infection. There's no, like, there's no mechanism by which lockdown cannot have an effect. And yeah. so it's just kind of really, to me, that's just a failure of understanding disease. There isn't a difficult thing to grasp, I don't think. So yeah, okay. And lockdown is one of those issues that Partha mentioned at the beginning, where people have become very polarised uh, in the debate. And perhaps it'll, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this, Christina. Thank you. I want to now turn to Matt because one of the themes of this has been uncertainty. Matt Morgan is a consultant in intensive care at the University Hospital of Wales. Um, Matt, my sense was that uh, whatever we knew about managing pandemics at the start of this. Um, there was a real sense of the unknown uh, in terms of uh, looking after patients, particularly the, you know, the more ill they were, particularly the ones you were seeing in intensive care. Uh, and that must have been quite a difficult situation, learning curve to cope with. Yeah, well, I, I stand in a strange position in many ways. I work in intensive care medicine, so I see the patients and their families and, and all those things that we've seen on the television. I'm also involved in research. I had research for Wales and critical care has been fascinating, but I'm also you know, writing for the BMJ and written a book about intensive care when people didn't yeah. know what it was. So it's been fascinating and, and terrifying from those three perspectives. You know, I think all the important things have been said, but if I was to summarize that in three ways, I would say number one, it's not the science. There's no such thing as the science, it's science. And importantly, it's scientists who are human, and that brings a very different perspective. You know, Christina has already said we are quite blinded to science from elsewhere, especially from South Asia, where some of the publications are not in English language, for example. We often don't see that, and that's really important. Secondly, science is not a certainty. I've said before, if the most important three words in English language are probably I love you, the three most important in science and medicine are probably I don't know. Mm. Saying those words is hard. It's hard to patients and it's hard to those in government, but it brings power because admitting that means you can start to do something about it. What kind of process do you go through as a clinician making a decision at that point? Well, I think there's two things. First of all, there's open honesty, but honesty with hope. So, you know, when there's a family member and they say, will my dad, my brother, my sister survive? The true answer most of the time is, I don't know. Mm. Uh, and that can be hard, as I say, to say. But saying that means that, A, we can try things to find out. So we can try to remove that uncertainty. And it also means, if the answer is, I don't know, 
there is a chance that yes, they will survive. So there is hope in that phrase, actually. It's, it's not a phrase which should be met with your, your head in your hands. It's a phrase which brings hope. Uh, and that hope should come through the scientific process uh, rather than through the science. Good. Uh, Matt, thank you. Uh, on this issue of I don't know, I'm going to turn, thank, thank you to all our discussants. I'm going to uh, turn to our respondents now. I'm going to bring in Andy McEwen, who's chair of the Nuffield Trust. Andy, um, thank you for joining us today. Andy is a uh, former civil servant at the Department of Health. Um, so I want to ask you about the specific point of I don't know, of not knowing, admitting uncertainty, uh, the power that brings. Politicians, um, politicians find that difficult. <laughs> I think politicians in the current circumstances find that impossible to say, <laughs> I don't know. If you're looking, yeah. if the country is looking for some leadership, throwing your hands in the air and saying, well, I don't really know, you know, we could do this, we could do that, what do you think? Is not kind of a recipe for any sort of success or leadership, is it? So they do have to manage the uncertainty and do what they um, do what they can. I mean, I think I'd, 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 I'd just like uh, possibly to make two or three points about this. One is uh, I was kind of intrigued by Partha's um, reference to NICE. And I have to say that I have a long experience of NICE and having been on the board and so on. And therefore I'm uh, you know, rather pro-NICE than what it does. But it has had, I think, a lot of success in dealing with very difficult issues and doing that with great transparency in terms of, and formulation of, you know, what is the question, but, you know, you talked about SAGE, that the question is sometimes it's badly put and come down from, uh, you know, comes down from ministers. And actually we used to do that to NICE, but they took over the question formulation and they take a lot of time over the question formulation, you know, consulting on that, getting views, you know, of all the interested parties and so on. And actually one of the, so the, the message of that is about, transparency and actually taking care to ensure you have got all the views in and making some judgment on that. That doesn't mean to see people necessarily agree with it, but you can't fault the process. But on the other hand, it takes whatever, you know, 18 months, whatever, to produce a guideline on one relatively small topic. And you can't, you know, again, thinking about the current situation, you can't do that. So, um, and so I, I come back to, you know, a couple of points we made is, and actually defending my former policy colleagues is, um, well, maybe the scientific advice wasn't so great to begin with. I could, you know, put it like that in terms of the advice that was being given. I think it could definitely have benefited from more transparency. And I think also there's a real question about who's giving it and who's in the room when these sorts of decisions are made. So there is a lot resting on Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance. And I, and, you know, uh, uh, I assume it's those two, there may be others, and, you know, and I fail to believe that they don't understand exponential growth and haven't said that in clear terms, haven't said to ministers what will happen with the disease, as far as they know, over the next week, month, or whatever, if they don't do certain things. Now, I don't, you know, so it isn't, so they will have had, you know, if they haven't had that clear explanation, that is a real problem, I think, in the way in which the advice, the advice was given. There's not this divorce, there shouldn't be this divorce that somehow it's the scientists and then it's the politicians. There is a kind of interaction there at the centre, which is critical to what goes on. Yeah, no, I think I think we'd agree that that, that interaction is important, Andy. Uh, let's come back to you on this point of I don't know. I think, I think Matt's saying that Boris Johnson should stand up at the press conference and say, I don't know what to do. You know, I'll leave it leave it to you to 
do whatever you want and it, take whatever treatment you want. I think what I think the point is that um, there's a power in ac accepting that there's some acknowledging the uncertainty uh, that the evidence is is unclear or may point only mildly in a particular direction and then saying well I'm taking a particular decision based on, on what we know and it, it seems to me that many of us that particular nuance has been lost well I um perhaps it has been lost and that and I don't think they did start off very well and did some you know perhaps quite some um some odd and not very good things but I think the point about uncertainty has come out more about this and the judgments are being made so you know going through the current lock you know easing of lockdown it's become clear that actually the staging post of five weeks because we need to get the evidence we don't quite know what's going to happen we want to make a judgment on the back of that which seems to me to be a very sensible approach and they have said in the past you know well actually we just don't know about this aspect of the disease or that aspect of the disease and so on i don't think boris johnson said that too much but certainly mm -hmm. on the briefings chris Whitty and patrick valance have said that so i think the point about uncertainty and living that has actually if you listen to it carefully it has actually come through yeah. not always okay. but it has come okay. through okay um I'm going to go to um, Isabel Hardman next, but I think Partha wants to make a quick comment on that. Thanks, Andy. No, I, I won't jump in because I think Isabel probably will be far more eloquent than me. But I think the point I was going to say is that I think what you're seeing also is now being played out in the public domain, what does happen a lot. Every science paper is out there in the public domain, people trying to understand, well, like, sorry, what is confidence intervals again? And the whole nuance, everything is lost. And it's people have really struggled with that concept because it's not in the gift of anybody just to go and interpret science and papers. It doesn't work like that. And I think that's not helped us and has created all the divisions. That's that's the way I look at it. Okay, well, that, I think that's a perfect intro to Isabel. Isabel, it's not in the gift of everybody to interpret science and the and evidence, but as journalist, Isabel's assistant editor of The Spectator, um, you're attempting to do that on a daily basis for your readership. That, um, that I was reminded of during this discussion so far, and thank you very much for inviting me, by the way, it was um, a piece that I edited years and years ago by an MP where he was writing about a very important um, policy uh, that he was supporting. And he talked about, throughout this piece, he talked about his love of policy-based evidence-making. Um, and it was only once the piece was actually online that he realised what he'd said, um, and that actually he, he was unintentionally being incredibly honest about the the, uh, the policy making process in a lot of Westminster, which is policy based evidence making and not just for, for individual MPs, but but in departments as well. You'll get a policy and then civil servants will be dispatched to find the evidence that, that backs it up. And I think one of the reasons for this um, and other speakers have alluded to this is that we just don't have that many scientists in Parliament. I mean, the, uh, the amount mm. of bafflement that uh, accompanies any kind of debate on any kind of scientific issue um, is quite depressing. And I, I, you know, I say this as a humanities graduate, so I'm as much part of the problem as everyone else in that there's a sort of reverence for the word science. You know, we must trust the science as though uh, it's something that's sort of given to us on tablets by God and it, it never changes. Um, but there's also a, just a complete lack of understanding of, of what's being discussed. So an example from 
a few years ago is the uh, the three parent babies debate where most MPs didn't have a clue what was going on. They didn't understand mitochondrial diseases. I spoke to one MP who was a scientist. He was just absolutely disgusted that his colleagues were being allowed to vote on this because they were sort of pinging off in all sorts of different directions, which had nothing to do uh, with what was being voted on because they, they didn't understand the science. And Parliament has a, a very poor record of uh, attracting scientists. I have to say, I don't think if I were if I were a scientist, I'd find it at all attractive a place to work for for a number of reasons. Um, it's it is largely people who have studied humanities, who've done PPE and so on, and, and that does not is not conducive to understanding the science uh, or indeed being able to read research. Um, being able to interpret uh, things that are being presented to, uh, to politicians by scientists. And I think that has led to, um, uh, I mean, a number of issues within this pandemic, not just uh, sort of little misunderstandings like lots of politicians don't know what not proven means within the scientific world. Uh, they, they, again, they ping off in all sorts of different directions about whether that's a conclusion or whether it's just a, a need for, for greater research on, on a certain area. Um, but it's also the the hostility you see, for instance, from the COVID research, uh, the COVID recovery group of Conservative MPs towards mm. scientists who they see as being a sort of malign uh, group of people who just want to keep us all in boxes for the next 10 years. Um, and I, th I think that, again, is driven by a lack of scientific literacy within Parliament, which is, is something that really needs to be rectified if we're going to have um, better evidence based policy making rather than uh, the other way around. I think we see this more widely also just in the way that politicians deal with not just evidence in terms of something that, that SAGE have brought to them or in other on other issues, you know, if they look at clinical trials and so on. It's actually that politicians have got very good at ignoring evidence of things generally. So we have had for nearly two decades now evidence of a social care crisis that is brewing. Politicians have found it very, very easy, thanks to the political cycle, to ignore that evidence. Uh, and now they're starting to say, oh, gosh, yeah, actually, it's, it's, it's been this pandemic has been pretty hard on care homes and on the social mm. care sector. Well, I mean, anyone working in that sector would say, well, duh. I mean, <laughs> we've been telling you that for 20 years. Um, and yet still all the conversations I have about social care reform involve not so much long grass as sort of forests full of trees in which uh, proposals for reform get parked for a very long time. Um, I'm sorry, this is very depressing, um, but um, but the, the sort of the, the more I've looked into the the expertise of MPs in, in this, the more um, the more dispirited I become that, that they actually have a clue what's going on. Yeah, well, thank you for that. I mean, um, you're arguing for sending all uh, MPs on a critical appraisal course. Um, but in defence of humanities students, uh, sorry, graduates, I'd say that not all scientists and clinicians are experts in uh, critical appraisal either. Uh, but I'm going to turn to one, uh, Mary, Mary Dixon Woods. Mary is a professor of healthcare improvement at the director in the direction of the VIST Institute in Cambridge. Mary, I mean, you're championing uh, using evidence to implement change, using different types of evidence. Um, how do we solve this conundrum? Thanks very much, Cameron. The fascinating discussion, and I'll pick up on a few points that have already been made. I think this point about evaluating um, non-pharmaceutical interventions is absolutely key. And one of the things that you can do is commit to evaluation from the beginning. 
I think the learning from not just other countries, but similar scenarios is, is really important. Um, Africa has, African countries have been dealing with infectious diseases outbreaks for years very successfully, and there are established methods for doing it, much of which was not used effectively um, in informing the response to start off with. I think there's a bigger, I, I, I'm very appreciative of the number of uh, times this conversation has already emphasized the diversity of science, that it doesn't, it, it only rarely produces definitive answers. And in fact, it's, 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 a, it's a field and in multiple fields that, that are hard to read and don't often produce single definitive answers. So, so the, the real question is how to make decisions under uncertainty. I think there are um, issues about the economy of attention uh, that have been expressed in various ways during this conversation. There is only so much attention, uh, there is only so much uh, resource, and that attention gets very easily captured by um, ego-driven behavior of uh, scientists and others. Uh, it gets very easily captured by emotional debates, and um, we don't often account for um, the range of considerations that need to be taken into account in, in reaching a decision. So the decision, uh, I, I really like the emphasis earlier on, on saying we're not following the science because the, the science isn't predictive and it's not fully, um, uh, it doesn't fully specify the answer. And so, so I'll conclude by saying I think there is um, a really important role for explicit frameworks that identify the range of considerations that need to be taken into account and that then explain how those considerations have been balanced in reaching a particular decision. And that kind of framework-driven approach then allows you to acknowledge the kind of things Matt and others have been saying about decision-making under uncertainty, and that allows you to be explicit that here is a consideration we've had to take into account, uh, but, but, but we have not had sufficient evidence, and this is how we've justified it. And I'll just give a very simple example, or it's not actually a simple example, but a straightforward example of how this has been useful. has been the whole uh, business of asymptomatic uh, testing programs, where um, there are many, much learning to be gained from uh, the ethics of screening programs. We've produced two frameworks, one for um, uh, uh, test asymptomatic testing programs in higher education, the other for testing programs in workplaces. And what we've tried to do there is, is identify through consultation the range of considerations, so then you can be explicit about, about how you're making the choice. Thanks very much. Yeah, Mary, thank you very much. That's a very comprehensive uh, overview of how we might make decisions in a rapidly changing uh, scenario and, 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 and use the information uh, that we have. A lot of that, uh, what underpins that is some understanding of the science, as Isabel was, was getting at, you know, some scientific literacy. Is, is there a way of of, 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 of addressing that issue, do you think? I think using a framework approach allows you to mm. acknowledge some of these issues about science communication. It, it, I, I, I think one of the issues is being clear about what you're prioritizing for understanding because it's just unrealistic to expect that, I, I used to work in the policy field as well, policy, policy makers have very limited attention uh, this is just the reality that they have to work with. They need things that they can digest quickly. And often what's, what's coming in is a flood. So, so one of the tasks of civil servants, for example, is to be able to interpret that and um, feed it forward. And for that, they also have limited attention. So I think a framework-driven approach helps with this. 
and um, the scientific literacy is important, but it's also it's also it's it's also oh, a challenge. So, so yeah. it's, it's being much more explicit about about mm. how we we account for this is what I would like to see the transparency that we've been talking about uh, recurrently through the conversation. Okay, Mary, thank you very much. I mean, uh, the ultimate impact of this, of course, is on the public. I'm, I'm going to ask Ben Page, who's chief executive of Ipsos Mori. Um, do we have any idea how well the idea of the government following the science has played out with the public then? Well, yes. Um, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, there, there are very mixed views, although it's fair to say, actually, if you look at public ratings of the, at the macro level, if you look at public ratings of how the government's dealt with the pandemic, they are heavily influenced not by what actually happened, but by people's political beliefs. So if, you, if you're a Labour voter, you're negative, And if you're a Conservative voter, you're, you're positive. I, I was just going to, I mean, I think a, a key thing, and I'll just build on Isabel's point, that when we in our MPs survey test uh, politicians' abilities to do statistics, even by working out probabilities of tossing coins and getting two heads in a row, they're, they're about as bad as the rest of, the, the rest of us. Um, and when we talked to them about how they use evidence, long before the pandemic, they were saying they had problems with statistics, they needed better explanations, they have no time, and they have a tendency to rely on the here and now and personal evidence. And I think all of that then goes forward in a situation where in a crisis, people want leadership, the public want leadership. And we saw all across the world, a surge in ratings of political leaders during the first part of the crisis, not necessarily because things were going well, but just because of a rally around the flag effect. You see it when there's been a terrorist attack as well. Um, mm. And they, people want to believe that somebody is going to fix it and that somebody knows best because mm. when, when we're faced with danger, a key thing is that we want certainty and consistency. Now, the challenges, of course, with the science is that you've got inconsistent, you've got uncertainty yeah. that you have to communicate, which the mm. public don't. I mean, this is the problem. The public do not like this. This is why conspiracy theories take mm. off at times like this, because they want to sort of believe that somebody somewhere, Bill Gates, has got a cunning plan. And actually, <laughs> this has all been pre-planned. People saying that Ipsos Mori means they die. Back in 2005, we merged the companies ready to start getting involved in COVID testing for the government. No, I mean, literally, I mean, and it's this desire, but it's part of this desire for certainty. So I think what's what's clear is that in terms of who's done well in the pandemic from the public's perception, it is where it is people who have been seen as being consistent, even if that means being consistent about uncertainty and the need to be cautious. And therefore, that often women have done better in all international surveys. So bottom line, public are happy for the government to make U-turns if it's based on new evidence. Um, they want all the evidence to be published, but they want guidance. Um, they do want to follow the science, but it is this point of consistency. I mean, it's amazing mm. to me that Nicola Sturgeon, in a country with death rates not dissimilar to those in England, has 74% of her public who say she's done a good job, and only 14% of Scots say Boris Johnson's done a good job. Um, and some of that is communication style. Some of that is also yeah. politics. And then finally, I think just accepting that all human beings are subject to motivationally directed reasoning, particularly mm. people like the CRG, in the <laughs> face of scientific evidence. And, but for scientists yeah. to understand that and, as, and building on the points that have been made so far, to really think about how we can consistently, transparently communicate uncertainty seems to be part of the challenge because we can take people with us. Ben, thank you. That very helpful and informative. Uh, you've raised the point of communication and right on cue, I'm going to go to Alex Freeman um, and ask you about 
how we improve this communication of evidence and policy. Um, Alex, you're a researcher at the Winton Centre at Cambridge and a former BBC journalist. Yeah, well, that's quite a big question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I'm sure you can There's an easy answer to that. I think we've got to work out how to be more open and more trustworthy in our communication. And, you know, there's differences between presenting evidence for policymakers and then presenting evidence from policymakers to the public. And I think the two stages are one is giving people evidence to help them make their own decisions. So if you're in public health or if you're a civil servant presenting to a policymaker, you're trying to present things in a way that helps that person weight the evidence the way that, you know, based on the uncertainties in that evidence and based on their values and their um, strategy uh, coming to it. Once politicians have made a decision, I think they need to be better at communicating the basis for that decision. And in saying, you know, we had this hard decision to make, we looked mm. at the evidence from all sorts of places, you know, scientists, economists, social scientists, the whole range. And this is why we came to this difficult decision. And to be open about the uncertainties, you know, <clears throat> some of this evidence might change. Um, we might find that uh, things don't pan out the way we expected because there's always uncertainties in the future. Um, so I think just being more honest, being more transparent, explaining your reasoning. Exp the, when we do um, work with the public, the public are very, very accepting of the fact that A, you never know yeah. what's going to happen in the future, but B, that there's uncertainties around what you know about the present and the past as well. And I think... Uh, there's a lot of second guessing of what people might feel about things that is actually wrong. Um, and I think we just have to learn to trust people uh, mm. when we communicate that they will uh, listen to what we're saying. And if we are expressing uncertainties and we're being trustworthy and honest in our communications, that they will accept that and, and judge us on that basis. Alex, thank you. So be, uh give people more credit for being able to understand the nuances and be, be consistent, as Ben was saying. Um, yeah. One of the reasons why uh, problems occur is that facts become, um, you know, uh, debated. And I'm going to ask Will Moy uh, from Full Facts. I mean, fact-checking and use of facts is, a, is highly controversial in this day and age, Will. Um, how can fact-checking, you know, help? Well, I don't think it is. Um, I think that we are relatively lucky in this country in that we do have a shared belief in a shared reality um, and the importance of maintaining it. We have institutions like the Institute for Fiscal Studies, even the Nuffield Trust, that have earned a reputation for trying to establish that shared reality and those institutions are valued. If you compare us to some other countries, which don't maintain that. Um, we are in a lucky position and it's very important, I think, that we don't talk down the benefits of that commitment to shared reality in the way we do policy work. But it's become harder and harder to do that for lots of reasons. And the one I would focus on is the fragmentation of audiences. Nowadays, people get information from many more different places than they do. And so authoritative sources of information find it harder to cut through making it onto the 10 o'clock news used to get you into 14 million 
households now I think is somewhere down to 4 million. There simply isn't any channel with cut through into the wide public in the same way that some channels used to have a, a sort of dominant position. And so it is harder to communicate effectively. In that world, what we find is that it is easier for small numbers of people to make a lot of noise. That's the other side of this. And mm. the area I would point to in this is people with credentials misinforming the public. One of the most striking things we've seen fact-checking during this pandemic has been people who are doctors or have some form of medical credential, chiropractors giving advice on vaccines, for example. And it is enormously dangerous, some of the advice we are seeing. It puts health at risk. So I would say fact-checking is, if you like, a discovery mechanism. It helps us understand and be first responders to misinformation as it emerges and point out trends. But actually, the fundamentally, there was a question of behavior. Do people in positions of power and responsibility provide other people with reliable information, correct their mistakes when they make them, and provide evidence for what they're saying? And the question is, how do we hold people who have responsibilities to those standards? In politics, that's very hard, as we know, and as we've been discussing. But actually, in the professions, in science, that question holds too. I'd like to think about, should learned societies actually look at their ethical codes and stand up against members of their professions or members of their field who are misleading the public, who are being um, careless or reckless with the information they put out? And if we think that's a good idea, how do you balance that against ensuring robust scientific debate where sometimes the people who are the outliers within a profession turn out to be right? I think these are hard challenges for the future, but they need more discussion. We've just thrown up so many issues here <laughs> that we probably need not just one you know, an hour session, we probably need you know, 100 hours to try and get, to grapple with these. Um, and I'm sorry that I haven't been able to explore many of the really important and uh, crucial points that all of you have raised. So thank you. I appreciate that very much. I'm, I'm going to hand over to Nigel, though, who I think can make sense of all of this because um, he's been thinking about this for so, for so long. And uh, uh, as the head of the Nuffield Trust, we expect him to be able to do so. Um, so Nigel, over to you. Uh, and uh, then I'll wrap up and, and close the session. Thank you. Well, well <laughs> thanks, Cameron. I'm not entirely sure I should be thanking you. That's quite a, a task you've, you've given me. Um, I've thought about this in sort of three buckets. The first is the, sort of the production of science. The second is how it's mediated through policymaking and, and other lenses, and then its application. And I think what we've heard was less anxiety about the production. I mean, maybe more people should be, more disciplines should be involved. Maybe we should be reading non-English language journals and, and, and looking further afield. The issues seem to be more about how it gets mediated. I mean, and one of the things that's come up both in this conversation and in the, the two previous sessions that we run is that the, we, I think we've underestimated how far the science is put through the lens of ideology, of different ethical frameworks, of a whole range of interesting cognitive biases that people bring bring to this and that we haven't perhaps fully understood uh, that or indeed as, as a number of people have said and has been reflected in the chat actually finding a way uh, to talk to the uh, to policymakers and other decision makers in ways that, that connect to them and help them through what's often complex um, and, and difficult issues uh, when they come to this with a bit of perhaps an expectation of certainty 
um, a lack of appreciation of the speed with which evidence can move uh, the, and the fact that, that science is not a unitary thing that, that, and that there is a high level of uncertainty. Kenneth Kukie from The Economist made a very interesting point yesterday that you know, actually this is one of the reasons why the storytellers often trump the experts. Um, and it's probably one of the reasons why uh, some of the, the, the really strange uh, sort of pseudoscience we've heard and that we've heard about the uh, COVID recovery group, you know, people latch on to things which, which match their story rather than match the science. And the, uh, unfortunately, the, the people with the um, comforting narrative of it's all a hoax, it, 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 we don't need to be locked down, we don't need to wear a mask, often have a, a story which is, seems more attractive and attaches more easily to the, uh, some of the ideology and values that, uh, that some of the policymakers bring to this. Um, then there's a sort of the application and reception more generally. I, I'm not entirely convinced that, that educating everyone in, in science is, 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 is a cure-all, but it certainly would be um, a, a, great deal, a, a great deal of help. Um, perhaps we, we can do more. Um, I, I struck, Will Moy made this point and, and it came up again yesterday, which is this, how do we know who's speaking and how, how they're expert? You know, someone from Oxford University pops up and says something, you know, in the past, we tended to think, well, the heuristic I'd use for that is, well, that's, uh, that's probably something I should pay attention to. Um, we, we're going to need to become much more, more critical of that. And, and we, when, I think we'll need to help people um, uh, work out um, uh, how they receive some of that, uh, that evidence. A big theme here is about, uh, about transparency of where the evidence is coming from and, 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 and uh, who is interested in its, in its production. And I think the, the, perhaps the most trick or, tricky bit of this, which is sort of a theme that's run through a lot of the comments, is how we help people understand uh, how much uncertainty the, there is, what risk really means, and how they how they might want to uh, how they might want to process it. Um, so, so there's, there's, there's quite a lot good description of the problem uh, we've had. But I, what I've particularly liked about the conversation is it has actually given us uh, quite a lot of clues for some of the techniques uh, that we can uh, uh, that we might think about using to deal with it. Nigel, thank you. Um, that, that's a very helpful summation of our conversation. I want to thank you. I want to thank the Nuffield Trust and thank participants today. It's been a very rich conversation, I think, and. It just shows that how, how multi-stranded this whole issue and challenge is, but it's fundamentally important in terms of saving lives and, and keeping people healthy. So um, we have to find ways of doing it better. And I, I think this conversation has opened up avenues for us to explore further. So that was our annual BMJ Nuffield Trust Roundtable. We'll be back later in the week with more well-being. Kat and Abby will be finding out about a middle ground between what you can do as an individual doctor and what your institution can do for you. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. I'm Cameron Abassi. Thanks for listening.